Sometimes what's important is not to ask the March 2003 question, but to ask the 2010 question. Yes, that's Tony answering the question by telling us we should have been posing a different one instead. The most eagerly awaited witness of the Chilcot inquiry. Today, Tony Blair gave his account of why Britain went to war in Iraq. And in a special edition of Politics Weekly, we'll be picking over his six hours in the dock and assessing how he held up. To help us do that, we've got Chris Ames, who is the foremost scholar on Iraq, uh, Martin Kettle, a columnist for The Guardian, and then down the line from Westminster, Michael White, associate editor of The Guardian. First to our reporter, Andy Sparrow. He has been live blogging all day. Pity him. None of us sort of quite knew how it was going to, to work out. The hearing has been criticised a lot for asking soft questions, and I felt throughout that although they were a bit more aggressive than, than they had been. They still weren't really forensic. And Blair's put up with far tougher questioning in the House of Commons, and he probably could have done with a better questioning. I think it was Ronald Reagan who once said that if you want to hit a ball out of the stadium, it's no good someone throws a softball at you. But anyway, I spent six hours sort of with my ears tuned to, to, to the telly and my fingers tapping away, and I must have written sort of five, six, seven thousand words. Yet my feeling is the the best moment came right at the end in that sort of final 10 minutes when St John Chilcott, who's made a point of stressing throughout the hearings that this is a lesson learned inquiry and he's asked most witnesses right at the end what they've that they've got to learn and it was at this point that that, that Blair had the opportunity to to come out with the, the pre-rehearsed spiel which was that uh, uh, he can't be sure that how Iraq's going to work out but uh, opinion polls in Iraq show that people are uh, positive about the future. And then there was a, a very tense moment where Chilcott said to him, have you got any regrets? Uh, and Blair said he felt responsibility, but he didn't feel regrets, which was consistent with with his fairly determined tone throughout the whole hearing. Uh, he repeatedly said that uh, if we hadn't dealt with Saddam, he thought Saddam would be an even bigger threat now. And he, he made a point of talking a lot about uh, Iran, the threat posed by Iran. He blamed Iran, effectively blamed Iran and Al-Qaeda for uh, uh, creating the, the post-war situation. He said if it hadn't been for that, we'd probably have handled it. And he said he th- thought the West is going to have to deal, deal with the threat posed by Iran at some point in the future uh, in the way that they had to deal with Iraq. So anyone hoping for sort of contrition or regret or apologies from Blair certainly didn't get it. But I'm not sure that many of us were, were expecting that. That's my immediate conclusion. I'm, I'm off now to, to, to wrap up the blog. Mike, do you agree? Was he, was he sort of classic slippery or classic uh, persuasive? Well, he was both. Uh, I, I jotted down at several points things where he took a question, he either didn't answer the question, asked another one or answered another one, or just sort of bent the facts to his will. Um, at one point, uh, Lawrence Friedman, the, the military historian, read out... Andy Sparrow said uh, in his live blog, unusual, the, the casualty rates for January on successive years, 2004, 5, 6, 7, and they, 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 they rise, they've fallen greatly since. And said, wasn't this rather melancholy? And Blair said, the coalition forces weren't the ones doing the killing. He repeated that twice. Now, um, towards the end they weren't, but at the beginning they certainly were. I, I looked up on the Iraq 
body count, which is very conservative, respectable uh, a website on this matter, and you know they attribute about 35% to coalition forces, and I think 05 or 06, I might be wrong. But anyway, that's very Tony Blair, uh, and as Chris says, you'll either be persuaded by him or not. I don't think it's what Blair would call a binary question. I don't think you have to believe in Tony Blair or not believe in him. You can say, well, this is the way uh, Blair does his business. Uh, you know, Mike, you can see a... through him. You can see through him a lot of the time, but you can still respect what he's trying to say. In regard to that answer he gave, was that him? Was that the one concession he did make today that that the post-war plan had been? He, he had what was it? He, what was the distinction he made? They hadn't expect. They had prepared for a humanitarian problem. They hadn't prepared for what happened, which was the state falling apart. Uh, well, you can. Uh, he, I don't think that was a new concession. I mean, he said that in the past, and you can read that uh, one of several ways. Uh, they persuaded themselves and were told by exiles that they would be welcomed as liberators, as indeed they were for ten minutes. But of course, the history of occupations uh, usually goes sour uh, pretty quickly. But Tony Blair hasn't read a lot of history, uh, uh, and also he Ouch. said, "Yeah, we prepared for one." Uh, notoriously not. Uh, we prepared for one contingency uh, uh, refugee crisis, perhaps we got another one, and we did not uh, uh, expect quite the disruption of the restoration of services. He talked about you try and mend a power station, somebody comes and blows it up. That's all true. I was intrigued, I'd be interested in the views of others, as to why he said al-Qaeda in Iran... Uh, and didn't mention the internal dynamics of Iraqi politics, which is uh, mm. Shia-Sunni standoff with the Sunni, the, uh, which you might call the uh, uh, a former elite, which had been displaced by the invasion, you know, causing quite as much trouble as they did, and sectarian trouble too, religious sectarian trouble. He stayed away from that, so far as I could see. I didn't hear all the all the evidence today. Well, um, my guess would be that it, it looked like he'd taken the lid off something very dreadful if he said that, but you blame it outside, yeah, outside it's, forces. It's an expedient thing to do. Um, now, Martin Kettle here, who has read a lot of here, here, history, um, uh, wrote a very eloquent column this morning saying that he didn't want to see a hanging jury, and we didn't get one, did we, Martin? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, it wasn't... I mean, the Iraq inquiry isn't that kind of inquiry, is it? I mean, as uh, Andy Sparrow was saying, Chilcott is constantly saying it's a lessons-learned inquiry. Um, if you go back to the inquiry website and look at the terms of reference uh, of, of the inquiry... It's about trying to establish what happened and trying to uh, learn lessons for some future uh, event. And no, to that extent, to that extent, I mean, Blair coming up and posing the 2010 question rather than uh, answering the 2003 question, as you put it in your intro, is, is pretty much in line with what the uh, inquiry is supposedly uh, there for. But that's, of course, not what an awful lot of people want. What a lot of, a lot of people want uh, is... Uh, some answers to some very specific questions about things to do with the uh, the intelligence, the use of intelligence, the promotion of the case, uh, the legal question, obviously, uh, and the planning. And um, Blair is very good at giving you a kind of huge uh, overarching narrative. I thought he did that side of it today very brilliantly. What he is not good at and has always not been very good at is the detail, and uh, he he skates over a lot of that. Chris, did you, having seen as much as you probably have, did you feel that they they changed their tactics today? 
Not particularly. I, I thought the inquiry has got better lately. In the second phase, they said, said they would be tougher. They said, said that they would refer mm. to documentary mm. evidence, base their questions on that. They, when did they change it? Was it when the politicians started? It was when the politicians mm. um, and, and the very senior advisers, decision makers came in a couple of weeks ago. They did change. They did become tougher. I think they took a step or two back today. They've clearly been stymied by this inability to quote directly from documents that the government has refused to declassify. Mm. For example, we heard a lot about this letter from Blair to Bush in July 2002. I don't think that was even mentioned today. That that was quite controversial, the fact that that hasn't been allowed to be declassified, therefore hasn't been allowed to be discussed. I don't think they even went near it today. So, so no, might that right. be fodder for a future, rec- for him being recalled? Or well, well, quite. I mean, my, my take on it today is that he did get away with an awful lot because he wasn't pressed on what documents that are seen by the panel and or also in the public domain anyway. Is he off the hook for good though or are there there things that could come back to bite him still? Well I think if he comes back and actually if by that time these documents have been declassified and they can say that he has said something that clearly isn't true on the basis of these documents he's probably in a bigger hole. Whether that will happen or not I don't know. We haven't seen the documents. What would be the potential areas in which that might be the case? I think uh, it's fairly clear from documents that have been leaked that um, Blair or people working for Blair told the Bush administration in March 2002, before Crawford, we would not budge um, in our support for regime change. Blair would not budge. Um, he's basically denied that such a thing ever happened. Those documents are on the internet at the moment, but they're kind of mm. not not able to be touched by the inquiry except tangentially. They're not able to be quoted from. You know, there's some pretty contradictory stuff to what Blair said today that we already know about. Well, there's something. There's something he an interview he gave very recently it was to Fern Britain it got him in a bit of trouble and here he is explaining exactly why he said what he said right well let me um, deal with the Fern Britain I- interview and um, Sir Audrey, even uh, with all my experience in uh, dealing with interviews um, it still indicates that that, that uh, I've, I've got um, something to learn about it this was an interview let me just explain that was um, given um, some weeks before your inquiry began. No, no, we'd been going for some weeks by the time we started. No, no the July. actual interview was given. Oh, I see. Some time it was before. recorded. It was, it was recorded, recorded some before time. before July of last year. Well, no, not before July last year, but before you began your public hearings in November. The, yeah. The point exactly, and the point that I'm making is very simply this: I did not use the words regime change in that interview, and I did not, in any sense, mean to change the basis. Obviously, all I was saying was that you couldn't describe the nature of the threat in the same way if you knew then what you know now, because some of the intelligence about WMD is shown to be wrong. It was in no sense a change of the position, and I just simply say to you, the position was that it was the breach of the United Nations resolutions on WMD. That was the cause. It was then, and it remains. Martin, you were saying earlier that um, you were pleased by one thing today, which was that he used language precisely and he'd been slipping recently in recent interviews. Was that an example of precise use of language? Well, more precise. Uh, I think uh, he had some repair work to do. Uh, Somebody said in one of the papers this morning that Blair might have got a bit ring rusty uh, over the past couple of years. Um, And I think he had to kind of uh, get get back in in control of this one. Um, particularly, I think what he had to do was to try to get rid of the uh, the very serious 
issue that somehow or other WMD was merely a pretext mm. and that was really what had come out of the Fern Britain uh, interview. I thought that in general in this uh, in, in today that, that Blair uh, was quite careful in, in his use of language not to go on about you know himself it wasn't very solipsistic which he sometimes can be it wasn't it was it wasn't that sort of mm-hmm. my mission religious sort of mm-hmm. uh, th- thing in 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 what he was saying um and i thought that uh, you know in general i thought he made a, f- a few implicit concessions you know, two or three percent mm. uh, 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 to you know to to the people who say he's been you know really mm. hamming it up and being a bit objectionable in the in these kind of interviews with Fern Britain and other things like that. Um, so I think that in some sense he's he's kind of uh, he was being quite sensible. But Mike, he won't have endeared himself, will he, to a Chilcot inquiry by going and saying what he said to uh, to to Fern Britain before he was due to speak to them. I think what he was trying to say, and Lyons initially misunderstood, was, you know, you give interviews, you don't think much about them, uh, whatever, and uh, I messed up, that it's a matter of no great consequence, uh, which is, I suppose, really me saying that's what I, what I think, you know, it would have been right to get rid of him. Uh, his view is that if you got rid of his uh, WMD, if he negotiated them away or gave them away, and uh, then his regime would fall because it rested upon the belief, certainly among the Kurds and the, and the Shia in the South, who were badly let down after the first Gulf War, of course, that that without them, uh, his reign of terror would have uh, uh, domestically would have would have ended pretty quickly. And many of his military commanders were sort of vaguely led to believe he'd got them. It was part of the great paradox of this is he didn't have them, but he wanted everyone to think that he had them until it was convenient that he didn't want everyone to think they would have them. You can see how misunderstandings arose. <laughs> but Chris, for followers of the inquiry, was it enough for a witness to go and say, well, something I said a few months earlier, I now retract or I finesse or whatever? It's an interesting question, the way that Blair, first of all, said he was going to wait for the inquiry and then came out with this interview, uh, which was, I mean, he said he gave it before the inquiry, he gave it before the hearing started. Mm -hmm. He clearly had a lot of backtracking to do. In the meantime, you have Lord Turnbull, former Cabinet Secretary, you've got John Major, you've got Hans Blix, all saying one way or another, we believed in Tony Blair's good faith until he said this. I think it was a very, very bad blunder, because whatever he meant to say, whatever he actually said, he actually made a lot of people who had not doubted his good faith suddenly doubt his good faith. And those are some pretty big hitters, all three of them. No, really. they're not very good witnesses, any of them. I could take any one of them apart for you. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, it, 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 it is central, isn't it? Because if he, if he did think there was this argument for regime change, he's not using that word, OK, then the whole charade about putting up a case to the UN and everything that was said to the House of Commons was a fraud. Now, we can argue about whether exactly he was lying, whether he conned himself and the rest of it. But the whole case, Chris, becomes a fraud at that point, doesn't it? Well, it does. And, and what's interesting for me is the way that um, Blair was pressed. I think it was by um, Friedman today about what happened just before the war, when in some ways the case was falling apart. The inspections were seen to be working. There was a chance that they would achieve disarmament. Mm. And yet Blair was still insisting that, you know, there was a material breach which justified the war. Now, if you take the line that from the beginning they were seeking a regime change, then what Blair did was entirely consistent with that. If you take the line that they were seeking Iraqi disarmament, then at the point where Hans Blix was saying, well, we can make this work now, what he did, what Blair did was entirely inconsistent with that. So, you know, it's the kind of the proof of the pudding is really as to what the policy was. There is evidence that it was about regime change from the beginning. But at Except the end, 
that Blick said, uh, Blair said twice today that his recollection of what Blick said in, in the time uh, 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 has changed and quite emphatic on that point. Clearly there's ill, Ill, Ill feeling there. Uh, uh, I, assume, I assume that Blair would, uh, would have settled, uh, settled reluctantly for the disarmament of the Iraqis, so I don't think it's a fraud. It's a screw-up, but it's not a fraud. Oh, I think that is true, that if the... Uh, that that if if they'd got an absolute signed, sealed, and delivered um, uh, inspection, uh, which uh, cleared Saddam Hussein, and there'd been cooperation, uh, I, I think I, I think that what Blair said today was probably true. That they would have had to, uh, they would have uh, had to, had to accept that. They would have had to, as you said, Bush as well. take yes, yeah. Well, he said so. I, I mean, mm. you know, yes, he did. Bush is one of the uh, missing witnesses in this. But I mean, Blair has said on more than one occasion, in private and in public, that uh, they would have had to take yes for an answer in those circumstances. Can I just say, I think Chris is right in drawing attention to that uh, really important and fascinating period just before the troops go in, because it seems to me that, that there hasn't been enough questioning in the inquiry and there wasn't enough questioning today of Blair. Uh, on, on this question of what happened when the policy failed, because the policy failed. The, the ostensible policy, or the real policy, depending on which view of it you take, the policy that was going for the UN route was a failure. It, we didn't secure what we wanted to do. And at that point, there was this kind of option of you know, a plan B. Jack Straw talked about it a bit in his uh, in his evidence, and one or two other people have discussed it too. Blair was there was a, there was a little bit on that today, but actually, that question, you know, was there an alternative for the British government to take with, with honour? You know, having marched up to the top of the hill, could it have marched back down again uh, in any circumstances in March uh, of 2003? I think it could have done, but Blair yes. manifestly thinks it couldn't have. Yeah, I agree it could have done, but the, the 2010 question would then be rather different. Chris, I think there's a, there's a very interesting middle way, in a sense, between thinking that Blair was out to achieve regime change from the outset and thinking that he was solidly about disarmament and, you know, tried to achieve that and, and eventually had to back up what he said. In, in between that, there's the idea that Blair persuaded Bush and the Americans to go down the UN route at the cost of saying, if and when it goes wrong, it's your call as to whether we go to war or not. And I think some other witnesses have said that, mm. that at that very key period when, when the policy did fail, a lot of people around Blair were saying, you know, we, we really ha have to have a rethink about that. And if, effectively, they've said, well, the cost of Blair's getting Bush down the UN route is that he made it Bush's call at that point. And I think Blair probably felt that at that point, that it was Bush's call. He, he may have achieved something by getting Bush down the, the, the UN route, but when it came to it, he gave away his right to, to call what the, the UK should do to George Bush. He had yeah, given that away in advance. That's very good. That's very good, except it, presumably he would say, if you're on the line here, well, you know, the UN, UN let, let me down. I wanted the UN to show it could do the business, uh, which it hadn't done conspicuously in so many other places in the last uh, a decade or so, uh, Bosnia, Kosovo, Rwanda, Congo, etc. Uh, and therefore, I had to go with Bush because the international order had to be maintained. I'm pretty sure that would be his line. But you make a good point. And I think, uh, you know, as Alistair Campbell said when he gave his evidence, uh, he referred to um, a, a lunch that took place at The Guardian, not in this building, but in our old building. And both Mike and I were present at that, so it's on the record now, uh, the, uh, in which Blair was here uh, at The Guardian on the 10th of September 2001, the day before the attack on New York and Washington. And he was talking about WMD and terrorism and the interplay between rogue states and so on. And, and so, you you know, I, I think he's 
entitled to say he's you know he's he's been onto this issue in various ways for quite a long time and i don't think in any sense uh, he would have lost a, a night's sleep about the overthrow of saddam uh, i mean i completely believe him on on that but i mean there are things aren't there i think over the last few days and weeks that where we found out that him what he said first time around wasn't true. I'm thinking particularly where he'd said it was absurd, the idea that the Attorney-General had changed his mind. Well, now the Attorney-General's told us directly, hasn't he, Chris, that he did change his mind, which we already knew. Um, Are there other things where what Blair said in public we can now say was absolutely untrue? Well, yes, one of them is, uh, I think Mehdi Hassan um, mentioned it in a piece on Commentist 3 today that actually Blair said in, I think, April 2002 that Saddam had big stockpiles of uh, weapons. And if you look at the assessment, the JIC assessment from March 2002, said absolutely no such thing. That was a complete exaggeration. There is, of course, the established beyond doubt mm. point. I'm not sure where he could go with that. Having said it, having had it said very publicly by the panel that uh, it couldn't be justified on the basis of the assessment, I think he had to say, well, I believed it at the time. That is obviously a question about his judgment then. Was it a catastrophic misjudgment that he read unsure limited intelligence as establishing something beyond doubt he in, a, in that sense he either sort of admits that he lied misread it or you know that he just didn't so understand we, well, the there's intelligence a difference between the two and the troops did go into iraq with the uh, cw kit on they were expecting trouble yes there's a difference between established beyond doubt and on the balance of probabilities life, we life is really established beyond mm-hmm. doubt except exactly. taxes and death Well, um, seasoned Blair watchers expected in the run-up to this, or most of the ones I've spoken to, that the big question he had to answer was always really going to be about the timing rather than the substance of the decision. Was it the case, as he claimed to Parliament right up at the end, uh, that this was a decision being made reluctantly and at the 11th hour, or was it instead something he'd agreed with Bush a year before in Texas? Do you think you gave him any commitments? The only commitment... I gave, and I gave this very openly at the meet, meeting, was a commitment to deal with Saddam. Now, so we could you deal were with at the, one that you had to deal absolutely. with... Absolutely. So, and that wasn't a private so, commitment, that so, was a public commitment. So you were agreed on the end, but not on the means. We were, well, we were agreed on both, actually, as it, as it came to finally, but we were agreed that we had to confront this issue, um, that Saddam had to come back into compliance with the international community. And as I think I said in the press conference with President Bush the method of doing that is open. And indeed, he made the same point. Martin, do you buy the distinction? I think there's a lot of semantics here. I mean, I think uh, that... Uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure that the, the basic thing that was uh, that came out of uh, the Crawford summit in, um, in April of uh, uh, 2002 was the agreement to go to the United Nations. Uh, and that was, that was the principal thing that... Is that at the same time a commitment to invade Iraq? I mean, uh, Mm. in some respects it is. But, I mean, you're looking ahead to bridges uh, which have not yet been crossed. So, I I mean, I think think it's compatible with with both positions, really, to be honest. I mean, Mike was at Crawford, but uh, and I wasn't because he brought back the mug, and I've got <laughs> I've got the mug of the Crawford summit, which is a, which is probably going to be a bit of a, uh, a um, worth, worth a bit fairly. Come on, then, Mike. Crawford correspondent. <laughs> well, it's a one-horse town in Texas, uh, not very well-to-do town at all. Not uh, and we 
didn't get anywhere near the ranch, you never do. We stayed in a rat hole called Temple, uh, and we never got to much of a sniff of this. The logistics were awful. Uh, I've not reread what I wrote at the time, uh, but it won't stand up too well. I Blair, made a, Blair made a speech at, at a place called College Station, home of the famous American A&M College big football team. But we, we weren't there for that either. We were on the road. It was just some of these trips are bad logistics, and this was one of those. So um, I remember the mug, uh, but that's my most vivid recollection. So no, enough of memory lane from my Chris. Come on, what have we what have we learned today? Then what would be the sort of two two? I'm not sure we learned a great deal. One of the things I was just going to say was that, in terms of Crawford, I think Blair did later say that he gave some kind of commitment relating to military action. Mm. It's very very hard to unpick what he said. It, you know, he said it quite fast, quite cleverly, but I think he did admit that more or less what Alastair Campbell said a couple of weeks ago that. He told Bush, if it comes to military action, we'll, we'll be there with you. I mean, I don't think that's any great revelation, given what he no. was saying at the time, given what he was saying afterwards. That there was some kind of stuff about we're still working for a diplomatic solution in February 2003 seem a bit thin, though. No, no. Not at all. No, 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 no not at all. I mean, it's quite legitimate to say that, you know, we were going down the UN route backed by the use of force. That has been, in a sense, their line all along. I think what's interesting, if there are a couple of records of what was said at Crawford. There is apparently a note that was taken by uh, Sir David Manning. There's also the Cabinet Office paper of July, which looked back at what Blair had agreed. One of the things he agreed was that efforts to disarm Iraq through the UN had been exhausted. That was sorry, one of the conditions that he attached to his agreement to take military action. That's a really interesting question. Does it mean we try and get a UN resolution and we fail and we'll go to war with you? You know, does it mean it could mean any number of things. It doesn't mean we get a resolution and we, we go through all of that and then they don't comply and then we just decide that they're in breach. So we, that's a justification for war. It could just mean we have a try to go to war. If the UN fails even to give a, a resolution then that's you know, enough for the Americans to say we've had enough. So we're with the but UN, Martin, as long as, as long as the UN does what we want and goes to yeah, war. Yeah, Blair said something very interesting. He said some interesting things about Crawford today, in particular about the Middle East peace process and the attempt that, that was the British government's initiative and contribution to the, the Anglo-American negotiations going on in 2002 to put the Middle East peace process right in there as, as, as part of what was what, what was uh, on the table and uh, in the end that didn't come to anything um, and that's largely because I think Blair even said this mm. he put pressure on Bush Bush put pressure on the Israelis in the end it never came to anything and the Israelis didn't give any ground especially because the uh, there was the intifada going on at the same time but Blair, but Blair said some interesting things about talking to the Israelis at Crawford or at least from Crawford today and I think you know that's a reminder that Seen from now, it all looks like kind of, you know, what is what is the explanation of the great conspiracy that led to the Iraq war? Seen from the spring of 2002, mm. it still was, to a significant degree, the, the British government trying to kind of pull this rogue American administration into being more committed on questions, not just like going down the UN route, big though that would have been, but also on trying to address something about the Middle except, East peace process. Except that Tony Blair I don't think that actually, was just window dressing. No, no, but he I'm didn't saying. actually say that he made that a condition of getting of giving Britain's involvement. No, he didn't. I agree. What, what he actually said was he saw it as necessary to making the whole thing work that there wouldn't be problems, additional problems on the Middle East front elsewhere. 
elsewhere that you know that the the reaction on the Arab street would, I've got would some be far worse. With that. Well, well Bush, absolutely. Bush yeah, he came to Hillsborough. He came to Belfast. I was there too, and I didn't buy a mug for Martin. No, you didn't. Uh, and said said I intend to spend as much to devote as much time to the Middle East peace process as the Prime Minister has here in Northern Ireland to the Northern Ireland peace process. And under my breath at the back, I muttered, "Liar." Uh, uh, although actually not a liar because Bush wouldn't know the meaning of what he had said but nonetheless Blair got him to say it and there was briefly a hope uh, that you know we get this thing going because Blair takes a holistic view that these things are related to each other and so they are. And behind all this is the question that Sir Christopher Mayer has raised and actually the, the Chilcot panel have repeatedly raised did Blair make such a commitment so early that actually all the conditions that he attached were effectively ignored that however much he said uh, but 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 they only ever heard the yes and, and there's a very strong argument that you know the conditions that he tried to extract were never actually delivered because he said in March 2002 I will not budge in my support for regime change he may have tried to row back from that but once he said it it was very, very hard to extract any concessions. I'm well, pretty confident that uh, Christopher Mayer set off a bit of a red herring on all this by using that phrase, signed in blood. And I think he, mm. he meant to do it because he, he has his own uh, agenda to follow in 2010 uh, rather than the one he might have been following yeah. when he was ambassador in 2003. Um, I think we're going to have to draw it to a close there. Enough um, of Chilcot for today. If Tony's recalled, we'll be recalled too and uh, bringing you round two of all of this. Thanks to Chris Ames, who's the editor of the Iraq Inquiry Digest, to Martin Kettle, who's our star columnist, to Michael White, who's our Crawford correspondent temporarily on secondment to Westminster. Thanks to Francesca Panetta for producing, and from myself and Allegra, it's goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.